Well, as our kids head out, uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, they're going out. They'll be returned at the end of the sermon. As they're heading out, we are going to dig in uh, to our next week. This is our second week of our fall sermon series that we are calling uh, Song of Songs, because uh, this is going to be a big one. We're in the Song of Songs. And so uh, when we kind of conceived of this idea for our next several weeks, uh, it's one of those interesting strategic moves as people say, well, fall is a time, kind of fall, September, and then January again are the times when you get the most guests in churches, the most people who are considering as the schedule kind of gets normalized again, maybe I'll come to church and see what that's all about. And so what you want to do in those seasons, if you're the preacher, is you want to pick the most awkward topic possible from the one book of the Bible that everybody wonders, why is there so much talk of pomegranates and gazelles? Why are we in there? So that's what we've chosen to do. Uh, what we feel uh, in this book actually is, is real. The Song of Songs is an incredible book of profound relational truth, and it's actually told at two levels. The first level is this first plane of existence where it's, it's, it's really a dance between two lovers. It's a, a he and then a she, and you'll, you'll see it going back and forth as we go through the scripture where the, the text will say he, and then it's his part of the poetry, and it returns with she, and it comes with her part of the poetry, and it's this actual really beautiful thing that's happening. And that's kind of one plane that we look at, but the other plane we said is this deeper foundational thing that is really, it's really the relationship between creator and creation, between God and humanity. And so we're looking at it on both of those levels. Last week we talked about intimacy. This week we're talking about maybe what a struggle with that might look like. And so we're going to be getting into conflict and then in conquest, and then we're going to finish with fearless love. And so in order to get into all these places, we're going to look at the screens, Song of Songs, chapter Two. Song of Songs chapter 2, and this is she speaking right before this. It says she, and she says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. He says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. He's pointing her out as something that stands out among them all, and she returns the favor. She says, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me is love. His banner over me was love. And that's where we're going to kind of sit today. That's where we're going to focus is this concept that his banner over, his banner over me is love. As a, a child, I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through eighth grade, and we sang this song uh, almost every week. Uh, Peter built the church from the rock of our faith. His banner over me is love. I don't sing in public for a reason. So, but I remember there were hand motions and you had to do the hand motions and you had to do the rock of our faith and then there was like a banner over me as love. And I remember wondering, who is this Peter guy? What did he have to do with anything? And I've never seen a banner that says love in my life. So this is a weird, but I just kind of went with it because you're seven and you don't know any better. And so that's what we sang. We sang his banner over me as love. And then to read it in the Song of Songs and to see it in its proper context, you go, oh, that means something entirely different than what we were singing about. See, in the context, in the biblical context, a raised banner was in one of two contexts. One of two places you would raise a banner. The first one is when you joined a conflict. Imagine uh, an army that amasses at the front, and they would raise their banner before they would charge. They, here's who we are, we're coming for you. The other time that you would raise a banner is in conquest, meaning the battle is over. You would then raise a banner to say, we won. And that's sort of the two places where you would see a banner Raise. A banner means something. And so what we're told here in the text is that his banner over me is love. So the banner of love and conflict first. Let's start with conflict. Every relationship has conflict. So while we're in a relationship series and we're talking about kind of intimate things or husbands and wives or boyfriends, girlfriends, if you are in a relationship, this applies to you. If you're not in that sort of relationship, guess what? It applies to you. 
Because if you are in a relationship with family members, with friends, with whomever, you, you walk the same path. Probably, all this truth applies broadly. So here's the, the physical truth. Your body has what amounts to a smoke detector inside of your brain. This is called the amygdala. This uh, exists. They exist right behind your optic nerves. And so if you want to find your amygdala, just press really hard on your temples and eventually you'll get there. Just push as hard as you want. Okay, and so your amygdala works as your body's smoke detector. Basically, it says something is wrong. I sense that there could be a problem. And what that does is it leads you into what is known as the fight or flight response that you've heard about before. Fight or flight. You smell smoke in your house, what do you do? You put the fire out or you run from the house. That's fight or flight. When you're in a conflict, it's fight or flight. You have to choose in the moment. It's an unconscious automatic response that is built into us. It, it, and what it does, the interesting part about this part of the brain is if, if you work a thought or a picture through your brain and see where it goes, it starts in the amygdala and the amygdala shuts down the highway, as it were, to what's known as your prefrontal cortex. So if you want to find that, you can punch really hard. You'll get there. And that's, that's where you make complex, nuanced decisions. That's where you can weigh out complex thoughts and you make complex decisions about things. That's where you can hear nuance in an argument. That's where you sit with your spouse and you go, tell me more what that's about. Let me get behind that. How do you really feel? Guys, you say that a lot, right? That's... That's the prefrontal cortex where all that stuff is happening. And when, when we are in fight or flight mode, it shuts down that highway. The highway is closed and we never get there. And so we never get to that place of nuance and understanding. We never get to that place of complex decision making. The best way I can explain this is my grandparents had a farm when I was growing up in South Texas. They called it a farm. Everybody called it a farm. We're going to the farm. If a farm here is green and lush and there are things that grow. A farm in Texas, it was more of a snake farm than anything else, if you really want to think. This more snakes than anything. You drive up to this arid landscape, like no living grass, it's dusty road, and you come up to a fence, and you have to open the gate, and as soon as you go into the gate to drive down the old dusty road to the trailer on the farm, the fence post is, there's one snake after another. Rattlesnakes are hung all along the fence post, because in Texas, there's this thing, if you catch and kill a rattlesnake, you hang it on the fence, and it's either Either it brings rain or keeps other rattlesnakes away. But if you had seen this place, you would know that it did neither of those things. I think it actually brings rattlesnakes and keeps the rain away. But it's a long story. So, so you pull up to this place, and I'm terrified of snakes. And so this is the farm. They had some Christmas trees that grew. I think it was called a tax haven, okay? But it, there was nothing that actually was ever really done with it. And it had a pond on it, which they called the tank, because taxes have to have some different name for everything. And it was a nightmare factory, let me just tell you. Everywhere you look were snakes. It was like that Indiana Jones pit, except everywhere. You'd wake up in the morning and you, they had boots, like different sizes of boots that were all sitting up against a wall in the house because you couldn't walk around the farm without boots because snakes will bite you and they can't bite through the boot. And so they would say, go ahead and put your boots on before you go outside. And you'd get ready to put the boots on. And they would say, make sure you dump out the boots first. Why? Because there are snakes in the boots sometimes. So you're saying the thing I wear to prevent the snakes biting me is filled with snakes. My parents are like, why do you have such a fear of snakes? I'm going, you sent me to this place over and over. So when you watch Toy Story and Woody says, there's a snake in my boot, and everybody goes, oh, isn't that sweet? That's so, that's so cool. I get, like, I get triggered and I get all uncomfortable in the theater. I just start sweating there was a snake in my boot that time, and then it slithered away, and then it was in the wall, and who knows where it is, and I can't sleep in this place anymore. So this is the problem. The worst snake, while there are rattlesnakes everywhere, you can actually see them coming because they rattle, and so you're not quite as afraid of them. 
The one you're really terrified of at the farm was called the cottonmouth. The cottonmouth snake is named as such because it is this long, black, slithering snake, and when it opens its mouth and shows you its fangs and gets ready to kill you, its entire mouth is white, which is, like I said, nightmare fuel when you see this thing slithering up to you. It's also known colloquially as a water moccasin because the cottonmouth couldn't just be on land. It has to live in the water too. So when you're fishing at the pond and you're reeling in a nice bass, you see right behind it there's a slithering thing and so you throw your pole and you run and the things will chase you down the road. I need counseling. Why do I tell you this overly long story about this terrible place, this nightmare factory? Because... That place was one giant amygdala. That's all it was. Everything you do there was fight or flight. Do I fight this, this little being of, of slithery evil or do I run? The choice is always run. But every time you do anything there, you lay down, there's ants on the bed. Hey, there's a scorpion. Hey, there's a snake. Why don't we stay longer? It's fight or flight all day long. Fight or flight. The banner that the snakes carry is death. They just slither up to you and the big banner says death and then you know I need to run. The question for us is, why don't we run when other people come into the room? Because I would argue that people are quite a bit more destructive than snakes. If you look at the number of people that have died by snake bite this year, the number of people that have died by humans this year, humans are much more destructive. But yet when when someone walks in the room, maybe somebody you, you love, you don't go into fight or flight mode. You're ready to receive them. When your kid comes into your room in the middle of the night, you're ready to receive them. You're not afraid of them. You're not ready to punch them. Maybe you are in the middle of the night, but it's a whole different mode. Why? Because the banner over them is different. The snake comes with its banner of death. Our loved ones, our spouse, they have a different banner. This banner of love tells us to do something wholly different. And what it can do is then it can create a direct line around the amygdala to your prefrontal cortex, and you were designed for this so that when you had faith and trust in somebody, when you had a relationship where you know not to fear that person, you don't have to go through your body's smoke detector. You go straight to the spot where you're making complex decisions. And you can understand nuance, and you can hear love, and you can work through that with somebody. But it requires that you trust them as they enter the room. It requires that you love them when they enter the room, and it requires that we get over the fear and enter into that relationship at a deeper level. This is only true with people that walk into the room who you know have your best interests at heart. And if we doubt that, if we think they have another agenda, we look at them funny, we look at them in a different way, and naturally conflict comes because we're in fight or flight mode. When the banner is control or dominance or power or insecurity or fear, when suspicion is the banner that someone walks into a room with, how does that go? How does that conflict go when girlfriend friend, roommate, wife, mother, how does that go when we walk in and the banner that we carry is suspicion or fear or insecurity? Husbands, how does that go when you walk in with dominance or power as your banner? How does that go? It's like snipers sitting across the table from each other taking shots. So in any conflict, what we can do is first ask, what banner am I carrying into this? With your friends, your spouse, your parent, your child, what banner do I carry into that relationship? Or maybe own, what banner do they see me carrying? And what have I done to contribute to that? Do people walk into conflict with you ready to punch and run, or do they feel safe and secure? What banner are you carrying? Secondly, the banner of love is important in conquest. So conflict, as we start the fight, we need to have love as our banner. But secondly, as the fight is over, what does that mean? What is this banner in conquest about? Conquest in the context of the Song of Songs is very uh, particular, shall we say. 
of an intimate physical relationship between a man and a woman. And so what we see and what is true is that a man, uh, a man uh, the, the, that love leads us into intimacy. And the opposite of love, as you've heard before, is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Have you ever been bored in a relationship? You ever gotten an invite to go to lunch with a friend and gone, it doesn't really jazz me up. I guess I'll say yes, but I don't know, I guess. You ever been in a romantic relationship and the spark is gone and you just sort of feel bored in it? You feel indifferent? When indifference sinks in, intimacy falls away. And this is not just uh, a certain physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. This is that profound closeness that two human beings feel. That intimacy falls away as indifference rises. And those things are, are very much uh, in tune with each other. So if, it is, if, if you don't have intimacy in your relationship, there's a good bet that you have indifference. If you have indifference in your relationship, there's a good bet you don't have intimacy. And here's the thing. If it isn't in your relationship, if you don't have intimacy in your prime relationships in life, you have it somewhere. There's no such thing as the human being who lives with the absence of intimacy. We all seek it somewhere. We're all looking for it somewhere. Intimacy is like oxygen for us in that way. We need it on some like subatomic level. We need deep relationship with other people. And when we lack it, we look for it elsewhere. Not always in dark alleys and and dark websites. If you turn on your television this afternoon, you will see grown men, shirtless, chest bumping each other in a form of intimacy we call sports fandom. But there's a, a wild sports fandom that goes on that you see that people are getting their relational intimacy with, with people who cheer for the same laundry that they do. Because maybe it's missing somewhere else. You get intimacy in work relationships, in platonic friendships. I need to go to lunch with her because he's not available for me. Intimacy in hobbies or food, intimacy in drink or church activities. And all of these are cheap replacement for the intimacy you were designed for. The other thing that's true is in the absence of, of intimacy, not only do we find indifference, but we start seeking self. In a marriage relationship, you're designed to seek intimacy by seeking the best for the other. We are, we are taught mutual submission. We'll talk more about that next week, but we're, we're taught to lay our lives down for the other person. And when we lack that in a relationship, what we end up naturally doing is then seeking self, because if I'm not seeking you, I've got to seek something, and it's going to be my agenda. But what are we seeking in life? Song of Songs, chapter 3, we, we flip forward. She is speaking, and she says, On my bed by night I sought him, I sought him, who my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not, and I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Knocking on doors, asking around, have you seen him? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves, and I, I held him, and I would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What we see in this passage is that love at its heart is the proactive seeking of another. Love is the proactive seeking of another. Self-seeking, not love. Seeking other, now you got it. It is a desire for the other and not a desire for self. She says, I held him who my soul loves. She feels a soul-level intimacy upon finding that one to which her soul was joined. 
So many of us struggle in relationship because our first love is ourselves and our needs. We carry the banner of lust or of need or desire or insecurity or inadequacy, but not of love. And if we're honest, we are not seeking the other, but we're seeking something for ourselves. And when you seek self in physical intimacy, when you seek self in relational intimacy, when you're seeking your own gratification or your own pleasure or your own needs or your own desires, when you are seeking self, the reality is you get exactly that. Which is a surprising thing to say because the preacher is supposed to say that when you seek self in physical intimacy, and then I'm supposed to go down the laundry list of terrible things that could happen, I should describe it more like the snake than just say you get what you look for. But if you're looking for gratification and pleasure and desire to be met, you can get that. It's only when you know that there's something greater you were designed for. It's only when you know that there's something greater on offer that those things don't satisfy. And everybody's had that feeling, that feeling when something just didn't sit right. It just didn't fill us the way we thought it would. And when we seek physical intimacy in places it was not designed to be sought, you will get pleasure. You will get gratification. You will get those things. But that is not the point of life. That's not the point of why we've been given bodies and why we've been told to interact. It's not the point of all of that. And so when it falls short and we wonder why there's shame and there's guilt and there's loss and dissatisfaction, that's why. We were designed for more. In college, I would eat macaroni and cheese. Natural illustrative uh, segue there. Everybody likes that. They didn't have Easy Mac when I was in college. It didn't exist. Lazy kids these days just open their thing and add water and put it in the microwave. Come on. We ate it out of the box, okay? You had to keep milk in your fridge. You had to be prepared. You had to have a pot to actually boil water and add the noodles. You add the noodles. Are those noodles? I think they're noodles. And then you pull them off. You drain them out. You get that, open the package of that cheesy powdery thing, and you dump the cheese powder in, and you stir it all up, and you add your milk and your butter, extra butter, and then you, what you have is a serving size for four, of macaroni and cheese. But in college, at 73 cents per box, you're going, that's called a meal. And so you sit down with your, your college hunger. This is your story. This is what I didn't do this ever. And you sit and you start eating out of the pot off the stove because that's really civil. But you're too lazy to do dishes. And then you don't eat with a normal human-sized spoon. You eat with that giant spoon like four-sized spoon, because that's what you were mixing with, and gosh, I don't want to do another dish. And so you start eating, and you try to get this giant spoon into your mouth with all this mac and cheese that's over-buttered. There's no cheese involved at all. And you finish, and your stomach is out to here, and you feel disgusting and bloated, and there's cheese powder on the side of your mouth, and you look like a junkie for mac and cheese, and you wonder, why do I not feel satisfied? I had hunger, and I took care of it. But I'm unsatisfied. Actually, I feel like strangely guilty and shameful at what I've just done. So you push the pot into the trash can and you vow never to do it again. And the next day you're at Walmart buying new pots and pans because, darn it, I need more mac and cheese. This is the reality of the way we feel in a silly illustration when we are misapplying physical intimacy in our lives. That we have a need and a desire and a thing in us that is driving us towards intimacy. And when we apply it in the wrong way, when we take the box designed for a family of four of processed foodstuffs and we make it our entire meal, when we take something designed that God designed for a man and a woman in a lifetime commitment and we apply it anywhere else, we feel this deep sinking feeling, this bloat of guilt and shame, and we wonder why. Love was designed to be shared. 
And when we keep it for self, it doesn't satisfy. There's a soul-level disgust. When we live outside of the design of intimacy, it doesn't quite fit. It is not until the banner of love and lifetime commitment come over that that it actually becomes something profound. So am I walking daily seeking the one my soul loves? Seeking their best interest, cultivating love, even at great cost to myself? Am I proactively seeking? Am I knocking on the door of, of another's heart and saying, how do I serve you? How can I, how can I lead you? How can I, how can I be a part of your life? If not, you might have slipped into self-seeking. So the question is, what banner do you carry in relationship? And who could love like this? Who loves with a, a radical love like this that isn't seeking self but seeks others? Who loves like this? It's really a good week for the Young Life people to be here. Our wildlife and Young Life heroes is really, Dan had the right word, these are heroes. Because they're the perfect illustration for what we're talking about. They selflessly give up time and energy and resources. They give up years of their life to go and knock on doors in middle school and high school, to go and knock on hearts and say, can I be your friend can I, can I take you to practice? Can I go to your games? Can I come to your, your band? Can I come to your choir? Can I, can I just be in your life? Like Dan says, so we, we earn the right to share with them what we feel they have the right to know, which is that Jesus came and loved them so much to give his life for them. It's a radical love that they demonstrate for us. That's why I'm here, because Nat Player, when I was 14 and in high school, started saying, hey, you should come to Young Life. And I was the kid who showed up and sat against the back wall high. And he never judged me, he never scolded me, he never looked down on me, he loved me. And when I was out of line, he loved me. And I was wrong on something, he loved me. And when I was doing a great job with something, he just loved me. And when we had 11 people at our varsity basketball game, because we weren't very good, and you could count the number of people for that daytime tournament game, you go, well, there's 11, your dad's here, my mom's here, that's pretty good, right? And we would go out onto the floor feeling pretty embarrassed because we were, oh, and everything, and there was nobody there. There was always one person there from Young Life. Because they loved us. Not because of what we could do for them, not because of how we performed, they just loved us. In our filth and in our stink and in, in all of our worst days, they just loved us. And as a result, I went to camp because they invited me to camp because they built relationship with me. And they said, we love you and we promise you'll love this camp. And I said, these people have my best intentions at heart. The banner over them was love. So I went and I met Jesus and my life was forever changed because they love me. Because the banner they carry into every relationship is radical, ruthless, proactive love. Who loves like this? Song of Songs is clearly a dance between two lovers, but it's a perfect picture of salvation. A bride and a groom, but also a people and their savior between a creator and creation. Jesus proactively and selflessly entered into our story, offered his life for us. Listen to Jesus speak to you through the text of the Song of Songs. Jesus says to you, as a lily among the brambles, so is my love for you. In a world where things are hard and relationships are broken, I see you as a lily growing up that is worthy of my love. In a world of pain and threats, I will be your safe haven. In a world of fear, I will offer you fearless love. Jesus says, my love grows up among the pain. My love stands out among the hurt. All of the things you work through in life, I stand out among them. Jesus' love is fearless and strong, so profound it makes people uncomfortable. 
You ever had a friend that loved you so much it made you feel a little uncomfortable? Or almost like they had the advantage in the relationship because they were too good of friends? Got to buy them a nicer Christmas present so I can keep up. Jesus had that kind of love. That can't live up to it kind of love. The reason that a lot of us never choose to follow Jesus is because we can't figure out how we possibly have earned what he's offering. And I can't live up to what you're offering, Jesus, so I'm just going to kind of follow at a distance. Jesus' love left people without explanation. He loved people with such ferocity and intentionality they had no idea what to do with it. Jesus arrived with love for people steeped in rebellion. He arrived with love for people who were either indifferent to his call for radical change in their life. They went, crazy person, leave him alone. Or people that heard his call for change and were hell-bent on then killing him because he assaulted their gods. Because their money or their religion or whatever it is they were chasing, he said had to fall so that they could find true life and they said, let's kill him. Jesus is love amongst hate. He is passion in place of indifference. Jesus is God's banner of love in a culture of toxic religion. And you and I live in a culture of toxic religion. And I'm not just talking about the religion that happens in churches. Religion that happens in every phase of our life. Toxic celebrity religion. Toxic outflowing friendship religion. Toxic religion of sports. Toxic religion of religion. Because this place is not about this place. This place is not about this hour, or what goes into the black box, this place is about how do we take the love that we've been given in the other 167 hours of the week other than this one and make it real. Anything short of that is toxic religion. This is about relationship with the Jesus who's called us to something greater. Because he loved us so much. Because he kept knocking on the door. Because he wouldn't let us go. Because he kept showing up at your game. Because he keeps showing up in your marriage. Because he keeps showing up with your kids. Because he's there. And he says, I love you more than you can ever imagine. God's love is an assault on our indifference and victory over our rebellion. God's love is an assault on our indifference and a victory over our rebellion. It is already done. It is finished. It is real. And it is waiting for you. God's love enters our conflict and resolves it on the cross. It crashes into our indifference and offers us true intimacy like we have never known before. God's love is proactive. You get the picture of Jesus coming through the streets of our lives in the neighborhood of your heart. Jesus walking through the alleyways and walking into the dark corners and finds you right where you are in your place of greatest shame and your greatest pain. Jesus is there. And he's asking, he's searching, he's knocking, he's saying, where is my beloved? Knocks on the door of our hearts. Have you seen the one my soul loves? So you and I have to ask the question. Are you willing to be loved that much? Are you willing to be loved that much? It seems like a counterintuitive question, but like I said, many of us turn away from the love of Jesus because we can't understand how we deserve it. And yet he knocks again and he goes, I love you that much. We say, Jesus, we don't deserve this. And he goes, I know, love you anyway. Are we willing to be loved that much? Are we willing to let go of our fear and our insecurity and all of our junk that we bring into this? Are we willing to let that go so that we can receive the love that he's offering? Are you willing to let Jesus take hold of your life? To let go of the hurt that you're holding on to that pushes you into fight or flight instead of into holy surrender? Are you willing to let Jesus change your life? to form you into somebody who loves like him. 
Because that's what's on offer. It's that we take on his life and then we begin to love the world around us that way. And then if we do that, guess what happens? The world around us goes, whoa, what's this? What's your agenda? Where are you coming from? They become like young life people who just keep showing up in your life, who just keep saying, I love you because I love you and because I, I feel like you have the right to know this Jesus that I know. What would our neighborhoods look like if we took that love into them? What would our businesses look like if we brought that on Monday morning? What would the college look like if every single person who ever came through here went there with that idea? His banner is love. His banner over you is love. It is perfect, saving love. Am I willing to see it and lay my fears down long enough to receive it? Ultimately, are you willing to answer the question that Jesus is asking? Have you seen the one my soul loves? We have two responses to that. Jesus says, have you seen the one my soul loves? And we open the door just a crack. and We peek out. And he's asking, have you seen the one my soul loves? I'm searching. It's middle of the night. I can't find you anywhere. Is that you? And your response is one of two things. It's my fear is greater than my willingness to be loved by you and you close the door. Or in a moment of Great bravery, you open the door wider and you go, here I am, Jesus, I'm ready. And that's where we are today. Jesus is knocking at the door of each and every life here and our options are to close it in his face and say, I have too much fear, I have too much junk, I've been through too much, I've been let down, or to open it and go, God, I trust you. Let's do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a challenge for me. More days than I want to admit. Father, I would confess to seeing your story as a great epic story and just that as a metaphor about life, but I don't often take the time to sit and see it as real. Lord, the image of Jesus knocking on doors in our city, the image of Jesus knocking on my door, of inviting me to follow him every single day is one that is hard to shake. Father, I pray for each heart in this room that as we experience that feeling this morning, that as you knock and invite us to follow you in a radical love, that you invite us into life that we've never known before, you would invite us into intimacy unlike anything we've ever experienced. Father, my prayer is that we would be the people who are brave enough to open the door, to enter into relationship with you, to follow you, to be changed by you, and to begin in the days to come to resemble you. To take your love, your radical, world-changing love outside the walls of this place. Father, we need you. We are lost and broken. You call us found and whole. So we accept your grace. We receive your love. Pray that you would help us to walk in it every single day. Pray in your son's name. Amen.